This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Happy Tuesday and welcome to the show. Thanks for hanging out with us. It is 57 days until the end of the Trump presidency. Woot, woot. Yes, yes it is. And I cannot wait until we can stop talking about this man. Uh, I don't know if that's going to necessarily happen after his presidency, unfortunately. But yes, possibly. I mean, the, maybe hopefully the next time we talk about him is like we're saying he's being arrested and going to jail. Yes. Okay. I see what manifestation means to you in 2020. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Coming up on the show, how to create a pandemic friend pod in a safe way, of course. Plus, with 12 million Americans losing unemployment insurance and Congress being on recess, what happens next? Uh, a writer from Vox.com is joining us for that. So we've got a lot to come on the show today. All right. Sounds like a good show. But um, Shira, I have yet to announce that I'm finally moved into my new place. Oh, congratulations, Ryan. Yes, I don't even know if I was, if I, if you all knew, if you were listening, I've been apartment hunting. I finally got my first place in Los Angeles by myself. And the only thing that I can think of is what happens if I die, like by myself? <laughs> is there going to be anyone, like how long is it going to take for someone to find me? And then here's the kicker, is my dog going to have to eat my body in order to survive? There's a lot of this thoughts that are happening. You know, it's it's dark, but it's real. I've heard this before from people who live alone. I've lived alone before, but for some reason, I never went there. And my solution was this for Ryan, was to start a, a friend chat group, and then he needs to check in with us daily. And if one day it's been 24 hours, he hasn't checked in on us, maybe we should assume that something has happened. 24 hours is way too long. Can you imagine? I'm already rotting at that point. All right. Well, something to think about if you have any uh, solutions for Please. Ryan here. Yeah. Slide into our DMs, add to LG. Let me know. I'm, I'm young and I'm, I'm so scared and nervous. This is a new experience for me, y'all. Uh, we're here for you. Well, let's get into some what's trending this hour. President-elect Biden spoke earlier today in Wilmington, Delaware, revealing more of his team. Today, pleased to announce nominations and staff for critical foreign policy and national security positions in my administration. It's a team that will keep our country and our people safe and secure. And it's a team that reflects the fact that America is back, ready to lead the world, not retreat from it. Once again, sit at the head of the table, ready to confront our adversaries and not reject our allies, ready to stand up for our values. He also spoke about the diversity of his national security team, which includes two women and African-American and Latino minorities. And all of his picks have ties to the Obama administration and decades of government experience. 
Now, Pennsylvania and Nevada have certified their 2020 general election results, formally giving 26 electoral votes from two key battleground states to President-elect Joe Biden. North Carolina's election board also certified the state's presidential vote totals today, awarding the state's 15 electoral votes to President Trump. And speaking of Pennsylvania, in an effort to curb the spread of COVID-19, the state and their officials have announced Monday that residents will not be able to purchase alcohol at bars or restaurants the night before Thanksgiving. Governor uh, Tom Wolf and Secretary of Health Dr. Rachel Levine announced that the temporary suspension will go into effect on 5 p.m. Wednesday and remain in place until 8 a.m. on Thanksgiving morning. Uh, and this comes from research. They said it turns out that the biggest uh, way or a day for drinking is the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. When people get together in that situation, it leads to an increase in the exchange of fluids that leads to an increase in infection. And are they talking about getting drunk in an, an exchange of fluids that happens when people get drunk <laughs> with each other? Ew, not an exchange of fluids. No, thank you. I mean, it can be interpreted in many ways. Yeah. On Saturday alone, there were more than 7,000 new cases of COVID-19, according to data from the state, and more than 4,000 additional new cases on Sunday. Levine and Wolf also announced a new stay-at-home advisory for residents starting Monday, though they clarified that it was not a shutdown order. Basically, they changed indoor dining um, to from 25 to 50% capacity, retail 75% capacity, and gyms, salons, other personal care businesses can continue to operate at 50% capacity. So for all our listeners or those who have family in Pennsylvania, that's the latest coming from there. But uh, that is what's trending this hour. What's happening in entertainment news, Ryan? All right, so let's dive into the T Report, those pop culture stories that are trending right now. And a hilarious and kind of cringy story coming from the Drew Barrymore show because they're facing backlash after airing a wedding between a teacher and his alleged former physics student. Yeah, so here's the thing. I'm going to back it up a little bit. Barrymore and her crew surprised Dan and Selena. They are a couple that was forced to cancel their wedding plans due to COVID-19 with an on-air ceremony. I mean, this sounds beautiful, right? The pair claimed that they met several years ago in school through mutual friends. and that they have now been together for seven years. Here's a moment from the wedding on the show. Dan, um, did you have anything that you wanted to say to Selena? I mean, I feel like we've waited long enough. So Selena, I was just thinking like, what do you think? What if we just got married like today? (laughs) I would love that. Really? Yes. (laughs) Oh my God. So now look, once this clip was posted online on YouTube, Viewers began alleging that the bride and groom met when she was 17, when she was his 17 year old student, which uh, some believe explains the vague relationship history that they provided producers. I mean, See, this is why you got to do the research. And either the producers were just lazy, like this, this story sounds awesome. No one's going to really look into it. But like, oh this God. raises a lot of eyebrows. Yeah. Do your research before putting a story like this on national TV. I mean, one of the comments said it would be a great story if it was actually true they met in school because she was his student the mutual friends was the physics class that he taught (laughs) i mean it's very very cringy i i know drew barrymore is trying to get her ratings up but doing this oh yikes if you want to know more head over to weirdchannelq.com and that's your tea report expect more next hour i mean this is like the maury show or what's the other one the controversial show? I don't know. Jerry Springer? Jerry Springer. I almost forgot. Wow. Wow. 
Coming up, now that the transition funding is officially going to President-elect Biden, what happens next? Senior editor from The Washington Post, Mark Fisher, joins us for that in two minutes. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. Yesterday, the General Services Administration, led by Emily Murphy, informed President-elect Joe Biden that the Trump administration is ready to begin the formal transition process. And Trump actually acknowledged the move on social media, forcing many to ask, did he just concede? Back with us is senior editor of The Washington Post, Mark Fisher. Thanks for being here. Great to be with you, Shira. So what do you think actually went down to make this decision for this to finally happen? Well, I think what happened was this uh, just one thing on top of another, a series of points of pressure put on the president by his fellow Republicans, uh, in particular, a number of senators, a number of former uh, national security officials from the Republican Party who put out a letter, more than 100 of them, saying it's time to move on to the next administration. On top of that, you had uh, just a clear uh, public sense uh, that the Biden administration is moving forward. And the Biden folks would like to take some credit for this as well, and they probably deserve some. They went ahead and started appointing people to uh, Biden's cabinet and acting as if he is indeed the president-elect. And then on top of all of that, you had just an unending series of court rulings against the president, as well as now several of the big states certifying the results of the election. There's just nothing going Donald Trump's way. Right. And in the past, GSA administrators made their judgments based off of media projections. So what was different this time? I think it was just the agglomeration of all of those different kinds of evidence uh, that really made it impossible for Emily Murphy to continue to resist the Now, she could have done this from day one, uh, but although she denied it vociferously in her letter to Biden, she clearly was under pressure from the White House and from the president, who is continuing to this day to claim that he has indeed uh, won the election. So she felt a lot of pressure in that direction. On the other hand, she was getting tremendous pressure from Democrats and others saying that uh, she was supposed to do her job and ascertain the results of the election. In other words, declare that Joe Biden should get the transition money and resources and information uh, that he needs to prepare for becoming president. So she was in a tough spot, to be sure. Uh, She probably took longer than she should have to make the final decision, uh, but she did the right thing eventually. And so far, uh, she's not been fired, which was one of her chief fears. Yeah, definitely. Senior editor from The Washington Post, Mark Fisher, joins us right now. So with that tweet from President Trump, was that basically his way of conceding? I tweeted that he was waving the white flag, but that's a little bit of hyperbole there. He has not conceded. He has said that he's not conceding. He has said that he still expects to win this thing. But as always with Donald Trump, you really need to look at what he does more than what he says. And this uh, move by allowing uh, the GSA to go ahead and release the money and begin cooperation with the Biden people, that is tantamount to a concession. There's no rule. There's no law that says he needs to concede. Uh, He just needs to let the Biden people begin the process of uh, smooth, peaceful transition. And now he's done that. So he can continue to be a sore loser. um, But (laughs) at this point, that won't stop the Biden folks from doing what they need to do, getting the national security briefings, 
getting the money to get people in place, getting the all-important briefing books from every right. agency that tells them what the current problems are, what the crises are that need to be dealt with. So, Mark, I, I'm super new to a lot of the things that, that has happened politically, obviously, as, as a lot of people are if they're now politically engaged. But are GSA administrators hired by, like, the presidents? Like, I didn't even know they existed before this. Yeah, it's a great question. The head of the GSA and the, the GSA, the General Services Administration, it essentially is the management office of the federal government. Uh, and they run, you know, they make sure that everybody gets the office supplies they need. They make sure they get the buildings they need to put their offices in, all that sort of thing. And they're the chief of that agency, just like the head of any government agency, is selected by the president and is a political appointee. And then everybody under her, or almost everybody under her, is a career a member of the federal government. They stay there no matter whether the Democrat or Republican in charge. So uh, she is political. She owes her loyalty and her job to the president. And that's why uh, she was unwilling to go ahead and do uh, what many would see as her job and make this transition as smooth as possible. Wow. Definitely. So what happens now that Biden has gotten this transition money? Where does he spend it? Well, he spends it uh, on, first of all, getting offices uh, in D.C. He's been running the whole transition operation out of uh, Wilmington, Delaware, which has enabled him to hang out at home, which I'm sure is more comfortable. Uh, but essentially, the, the locus of operations will now move to Washington. And an important part of that is having people in place in his transition team who will be attached to each agency and will start the process of learning where things stand, what needs to be taken up on day one, and so the money goes toward uh, hiring people and getting office space primarily. It's about $6 million, not huge by government standards, but it at least gets things moving. And really, it's those briefing books that each agency prepares that's far more an important part of this than the money itself. Uh, okay, you're sticking around with us because after this, uh, the big question, head home or hunker down? We're here to help you navigate the Thanksgiving COVID dilemma with Mark Fisher, senior editor from The Washington Post, next in two minutes. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. The last straw in this heavy and taxing year seems to be the holidays, yet 2020 keeps on delivering, taking the holidays now away from us, leaving many to make some difficult decisions to head home despite CDC warnings or hunker down. Back with us is senior editor from The Washington Post, Mark Fisher. Thanks for being here. Great to be with you. Now, you wrote a whole piece about this. How politicized has Thanksgiving gone this year? You know, that's really the, 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 the sort of sad question that we all have to ask. Are people on the road or staying home because they think it's the right decision for their family, because they think it's right for their health? Is it the right thing to do scientifically? Or are they making that decision because they're for or against Donald Trump? Uh, we certainly hope it's the former, but uh, in our reporting, we found that in many cases, it is the latter, that people who feel loyal to Donald Trump are saying, hey, I want to go ahead and have my big family gathering. Uh, and either they say, oh, the virus is really just the flu, it's nothing much, or they say, hey, I'm going to get it anyway, so I don't care, I still want to see my family. Or like the president's own COVID advisor, uh, Scott Atlas, they say, worse for old people to be deprived of contact uh, with their families than it is for them to get COVID, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense if you look at the uh, death numbers uh, and the extraordinary impact on the elderly. Uh, but that said, most people are saying, both to our reporters and uh, in polls, most people are saying that they are having smaller gatherings this Thanksgiving or no gatherings. 
And uh, while people are on the road, in fact, I'm coming to you from I-95, the main street of the East Coast, and I can tell you uh, by looking uh, right out my windshield that people are on the road and people are uh, heading to grandma's house. But most people are cutting back in some way. We talked to a lot of families who are coming up with some really uh, innovative ways to get together without endangering each other. Yeah. Do you think the CDC was too late with giving their holiday guidelines or do you think that even matters? You know, I I think they were late. I think they've been really um, reluctant to speak out and to say the things that need to be said because they don't want to anger President Trump and you know, lose resources for their agency or be shut down or lose their jobs. Uh, So they have been extraordinarily silent over recent months. This was the first major news briefing by the CDC since June, which is astonishing given uh, the health crisis that we're in. Uh, But they did come out last Thursday and say that people need to stay home and not have Thanksgiving with their extended families. And so, you know, the question is, will people listen? There's so much in the way of COVID exhaustion out there, people just being tired of being told what they can and can't do. Uh, and I think a lot of people are rebelling against that. But it should be said that most people are still cooperating. And uh, we found people who are you know, going to have the meal at home, but in, instead of being around one big table, they're all going to go get their food and then go to the separate bedrooms and, and stay apart from each other, uh, from people who haven't been living in their household. That was an innovative way of, of doing it. Other people are going to try to have their Thanksgiving outdoors, which, you know, may be easy to do in L.A. That's true. Yeah, we have it good in L.A. Really, we don't have a lot to complain about. And again, senior editor of Mark Fisher from The Washington Post joins us right now. What was the biggest surprise from your piece about how Americans are celebrating Thanksgiving this year? Well, I think what we're seeing is that a lot of people are cooking who don't usually do the cooking. And so, uh, you know, right? uh, They're not going to grandma's house. They're not going to their parents' house. And so uh, the people who uh, deal in turkeys and uh, dish out recipes are saying that they're getting a lot of either first-time or otherwise newbie uh, Thanksgiving cooks who are coming to them with all kinds of uh, interesting questions like, can you use chicken instead of turkey? Um, so, you know, it, it may be a little rough around the edges in some houses, but nonetheless, people are giving it a try and, uh, you know, it may create a whole new generation of cooks. Yeah. And not to mention, you know, this time we often saw a lot of volunteering. We saw people, you know, give food out to the homeless. That's probably not going to happen, right? Yeah, that's a real problem. We talked to several families who have real traditions in their own households where before they sit down for their own Thanksgiving, they go out and they either bring home-cooked food to people, homeless people on the street, or they uh, bring, uh, go do some work at a shelter, those kinds of activities, and a lot of families are pulling back from that. But I was very pleased to see that uh, families that are shying away from that kind of exposure to the virus are nonetheless finding other ways to help, whether that's giving donations or dropping food off at churches and shelters. Uh, they're finding that the, there is a way to still help those Uh, who really need it in this time, uh, even if you're not doing it hand-to-hand the way you might ordinarily. Amazing. Well, Mark Fisher, thank you again for being with us. Great to be with you. Have a good one. And happy Thanksgiving to you. Mark Fisher, again, is a senior editor of The Washington Post. Coming up on the show, what happens to Trump's official Twitter account after Biden becomes POTUS? We tell you next in two minutes. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. Let's talk about the president and Twitter, shall we? Do we really have to? I thought we were moving past this. Well, do you ever wonder what happens to a president's Twitter account once they're no longer in office? We have the answer for you if it's been on your mind. So this is interesting because 
Donald Trump obviously did it his way. When he came to office, he's continued using at real Donald Trump. As we see, it's etched, unfortunately, into our brains and scarring many of us, actually. Uh, but if we look back at Obama, you know, and he really took to social media. Obviously, social media wasn't around for previous presidents. He went by at POTUS44, which was then archived once he left. If you go there right now, he doesn't continue tweeting from that, obviously. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so at POTUS does exist, by the way. Yeah, for sure. I think that's why I was thinking Donald Trump has a regular account, um, which is his personal one, the one that he tweets all the nonsense on. And then he has a more, quote unquote, professional account, which is at POTUS. Yeah, I wouldn't necessarily say it's a professional account right now because it's just retweets from at real Donald Trump. That's pretty much it. Yeah. And my thing is people are calling for him, especially I know Facebook and Twitter, they have said that they will remove him as like the uh, the U.S. president on their on the Twitter account. And so that means I wonder, does his account just become a normal account, which means that it can actually be blocked and like deleted or because he was using his personal account? Is it going to be archives? Like, how is this going to work? Because now the lines are blurred. Well, just like any smart branding person would do, which we all know he likes marketing. He decided to do everything from his personal account so it won't be archived and it will always exists. So at real Donald Trump, he owns that. That is not going anywhere. However, how it works is once someone leaves, it becomes like at POTUS 44 for Obama and at POTUS now will become at POTUS 45 for Trump. And all those tweets will be archived. And there's also other presidential accounts. These are things like we don't think about. And I just found this fascinating in an article on Mashable that a bunch of these accounts will be turned over to President-elect Joe Biden on Inauguration Day, even if Trump still hasn't conceded by then. And these include at White House, okay. at POTUS, okay. at VP, at FLOTUS, at Press Secretary, at La Casablanca. Other accounts like at State Department will be passed along, but Trump administration tweets will still be on the timeline and searchable and commentable, whereas some of the other accounts will be archived. So we, we don't need to look back at that uh, traumatic past. <laughs> but it's it's really fascinating because there are certain Twitter accounts that he actually decided not to use during his presidency. And I think this shows a lot about where his focus was. And do you want to hear what some of those accounts are? Because I found this fascinating. I mean, I really don't, but I know we have to do this. So <laughs> I don't let's know go. why. I'm just like such a social media nerd. So he kept these going. The ONDCP, which is the Office of National Drug Control Policy, he kept uh, Office of Management and Budget going, a chief technology officer going, and economic advisors. He stopped using these accounts. The account for science and technology policy, surprise, surprise, because we all know he's not into science. The ONDCP Espanol, so an account for those who are Spanish. What does that say about this administration? And the White House account, uh, the Council on Environmental Equality, again, says a lot that he stopped using those accounts. Just saying. See, yeah, I mean, he's really not him. using the Las Casablanca one. Um, I feel like the I just saw the last retweet was November 2nd of Donald Trump's tweet from real John, Donald Trump. And it was just in Spanish. Like, it hasn't been used, to be honest, since October 28th. Well, there you have it. And I'm sure some of these counts will find a new life with this new administration. Wow. Now, coming up on the show, who's past Bill Gates as the richest person alive? That's next on What's Trending This Hour. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q.
Coming up on the show, when is it time to cut off a toxic family member? Ooh, I know immediately. That's my answer. Okay, well, you might as well be a professional expert, Ryan. I am. Do you not <laughs> listen to this show? Oh, yes, true. Uh, and that's why we do have an expert joining us for that, to add to your great insights. Uh, but also, what does scoliosexual mean? We're bringing you that and more next on the show. But let's get into some what's trending this hour President Trump and First Lady Melania Trump celebrated the Thanksgiving holiday today with the traditional pardoning of the national Thanksgiving turkey. Corn, I hereby grant you a full pardon. Thank you, Corn. Iowa Farm. I liked you. Happy Thanksgiving to everybody. Thank you very much. They pardoned uh, two turkeys, one named Corn and the other Cobb. Cute laugh track. I actually hate corn on the cob. It's not good. Depends. You know, depends who makes it. Depends on your preferences. Uh, And the irony, though, of the pardoning didn't fall on deaf ears. Now, the event uh, was Trump's second time in public since the General Services Administration told President-elect Joe Biden they're ready to start the formal transition process. And this whole thing uh, followed brief remarks earlier in the day on the stock market, which he continued to harp on here as well. And I just want to congratulate everybody. The Dow Jones Industrial Average just broke for the first time in history 30,000. It's now, uh, that's good. It's great for jobs and it's good for everything. And this is the ninth time that we set a record during the course of 2020. And it's the 48th time that we set the record during the Trump administration. And there's never been anything like that. So I just want to congratulate everybody that worked so hard the White House, but maybe most importantly, the people of our country. It's a tremendous achievement. Oh, my God. I'm so shocked that you didn't mention that somebody asked while he was pardoning the turkeys if he was going to pardon himself. Well, that's why I say it didn't fall on deaf ears. (laughs) But yes, there was uh, someone that screamed that out. And uh, guess what? He did not respond. Of course not. Now, Marco Rubio said Joe Biden's, quote, Ivy League cabinet will be, quote, polite and orderly caretakers of America's decline. The U.S. senator from Florida tweeted this about President-elect Biden's national security team, saying, I have no interest in returning to the normal that left us dependent on China. But many were pointing out that a number of people in President Trump's cabinet, not to mention the president himself, also attended Ivy League schools. And finally, Elon Musk is now the world's second richest person, according to the Bloomberg Billionaire Index, after overtaking Microsoft billionaire Bill Gates. Musk saw his net worth rise by $7.2 billion to $128 billion on Monday. How's that for a Monday motivation? I mean, wow, billions of dollars. I'm never going to see that number. Oh, no. I believe in you, Ryan. Sure, you're never going to see that number either. I believe in me, Ryan. (laughs) The only person ahead of Musk now is Amazon boss Jeff Bezos, who took the top spot from Gates in 2017 and has stayed there ever since, catapulting every other industry into uh, the ground. And that was What's Trending This Hour. 
What's happening in entertainment news, Ryan? Well, speaking of a mil- uh, of a billionaire that I actually like to talk about, Tyler Perry had lines of cars stretch for miles in Atlanta on Sunday as nearby residents lined up to get free Thanksgiving meals donated by the one and only Tyler Perry. Now, the actor and billionaire was donating boxes of full of supplies for the holidays to those in need, along with gift cards. And the description for the charity event read that although we wish that we could feed everyone in need, we will close the line at 5,000 families. Now, the giveaway was intended to only run from 8 a.m. until noon, but the intense demand meant that some people lined up their cars the night before in hopes of getting a box of non-perishables. Like, wow. Tyler Perry does this a lot where he'll do like, he'll pay off a whole Walmart stores of layaways or something. Um, But this was huge. And to see the photos and the videos coming out of this of people literally miles waiting the night before, people need this. And Tyler Perry most definitely, you know, made some wishes happen. Yeah, imagine if the White House did this. Oh, like, God. I'm going to be there for the people. Uh, I didn't realize Tyler Perry is a billionaire. Yes, honey. Tyler Perry is a billionaire, a new billionaire, by, might I add. Now, um, we're going to move on to some other news with Miley Cyrus, because you know she has a new album coming out called Plastic Hearts. I can't wait. She's been giving this, like, 80s rock star vibes that I've been obsessed with. Um, mm-hmm. But she's speaking out candidly during her, her moment of change, where she says that she stumbled in her sobriety journey during the pandemic. She opened up about the time in a new interview and she said well I like a lot of people being completely honest during the pandemic fell off I would never sit here and go I've been effing sober I didn't and I fell off and I realized that I now am back on sobriety two weeks sober and I feel like I really accepted uh, that time Uh, she went on to kind of talk about the significance of being sober earlier this year you know she just had a birthday on Monday she turned 28 Uh, But she said 27 to me was a year that I really had to protect myself. And honestly, I feel the same way. Oh, you and Miley. Who knew? Well, yeah, I think we all have to protect our energy, right? Yeah, no, I know. The pandemic has been so much in this year. It's just been a mess. But um, yeah, I love that she was speaking candidly. And that interview is like 21 minutes. So y'all should go check it out. If you want to know more about it, head over to WeirdChannelQ.com and keep us followed. Um, Honey, I got more tea report coming up in next hour. Love it. And I'm a, I'm a big fan of Miley and I appreciate her transparency because I, I do think it helps a lot of people. Uh-uh, don't try to clean it up now. Don't try to no, clean it up saying. now. You want to joke? <laughs> she want to make a joke trying to clean it I'm up. Uh, <laughs> I think it's good. And it's important to share uh, her sobriety journey because a lot of people are going through that and it's yes. a real issue. So I have compassion for that. Coming up on the show with 12 million Americans who are about to lose unemployment insurance and Congress on recess, should Americans expect any financial support before the end of 2020? We're bringing you those details next in two minutes. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. 12 million Americans are about to lose unemployment insurance and Congress is on recess. So what happens now? Well, joining us is Emily Stewart, business and politics reporter at Vox.com. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. It seems like both Democrats and Republicans keep pointing the finger at each other. So who's to blame for this? That is a good and a hard question. And it really depends on who you ask. I mean, I think that... My general line here is that Democrats did pass a follow-up bill to the CARES Act, which was that big stimulus bill that was passed in March. So Democrats have a proposal here. Now, Republicans say that is too big, that is not what they want, but 
Senate Republicans at least don't seem to have a plan that they can agree on either. And so, sure, we can say Nancy Pelosi maybe thought her hand was a better hand than it was in her negotiations, at least to have the election. But at the same time, like, I'm genuinely curious what a Republican Senate actually is willing to pass because they haven't been able to put forth any you know specific proposal here yeah and this is supposed to end on december 26th the day after christmas um but i was actually thinking about this could this actually end earlier for some folks because obviously that's the week of the holiday and so it might actually end earlier on the like 18th or 19th yeah so it's it's really tricky and kind of a lot of people have their own different circumstances so the you know, we had with the unemployment insurance, obviously, like people are eligible for their normal. So what happens with the CARES Act? There's the $600 in extra federal unemployment um, insurance per week that we saw expire in July, at the end of July. And so now there are a couple of more programs, basically, that applied to either people who are long-term unemployed that was adding on some more weeks to their state benefits or people who are like freelancers, contractors who aren't normally um, eligible for regular unemployment. So those are the programs that are about to dry up. But as you said, for a lot of people, this has dried up earlier. I've been hearing from people who, you know, maybe before the pandemic had two jobs. One was regular full-time with a W-2. One was as a contractor. Well, the W-2 one kind of, you know, beat that one out. And so they haven't been collecting for quite a long time or they haven't been collecting a lot of money. So a lot of this is supposed to end at the end of the year, but people have been hurting for a long time already. Oh, that's for sure. Again, you're hearing the voice of Emily Stewart, business and politics reporter at Vox. What about Trump? Where does he play into this? Why couldn't he do an executive order for this? Or was he just delaying that as a tactic to get elected? Some of this, you know, Trump can't do by himself. Now, there are certain things that he has done. Um, student loan forbearance, he has extended by executive order through the end of the year. Now, he could do that more. It's not clear that he will. Um, he's also done a little bit of finagling with some of the unemployment to get people some extra money for a little while through some emergency measures. But, you know, ultimately, there is only so much he can do via executive order. Now, I would argue that he also could and should have played a much bigger role in the stimulus talks. You know, he seems to be he fires off a tweet every now and then. But maybe he could have played a bigger role and could now even in telling Senate Republicans like, hey, let's figure out an actual deal. But he seems to have constantly have treated him treated himself as an observer to a lot of the process. And that's been damaging. Yeah. And it seems like Republican talking points are all about the economy. Isn't this going to have a a larger effect with 12 million people out of work going to have a bigger effect than anything on the economy? It's a tricky situation. And I think what's happened with the economy right now is that what we're seeing is kind of a K-shaped recovery, which you hear people talking a lot, which basically means the people at the top are doing pretty well right now, recovering pretty well. And the people at the bottom are not. And so if the bottom does fall out for these 12 million people at the end of the year, we see more of that, you know, like for me, I work on Zoom. My life is not that different. But if I have an in-person job that has not been able to come back, that I haven't been able to find a new job, the, the bottom falls out for me even more. That's for sure. Now, in writing your story, did you discover any options for people after December 26th? Unemployment, student loans, mortgages, etc.? It's tricky and it's hard. And I think it's also hard because I, I at least continue to hold out hope that maybe Congress will do something. But there are options out there. But at the same time, you know, like, I think that maybe the saving grace for some people and who knows is that 
people were able to build up some savings early on in the pandemic because, you know, you weren't going anywhere. It's not like you could go to a restaurant to spend money. And a lot of people got stimulus checks. People got expanded unemployment insurance. So hopefully they built up savings. And we saw that people built up savings. I think the question now is how long those savings are actually going to last. Yeah. And how much does is this going to reflect on President-elect Joe Biden and mm-hmm. Vice President-elect Kamala Harris if they don't get in and kind of fix this thing immediately? Right. And that's where there's a lot that's riding on this Georgia Senate runoff, where there are two seats in play that are really going to decide who has control of the Senate. I think if you go into January 20th and it is a Democratic-controlled Senate or rather 50-50 and then Kamala Harris is, is a tie vote, you have a lot more options here than what you have with a Republican-controlled Senate, but also Biden ran saying that he can work with Republicans and strike a deal, so maybe he can. But, I mean, at some point we'll get the vaccine, right? And it sounds good. And when that happens, the economy should be good. I think the question is how much damage we have done in the meantime that will make the recovery a lot harder. Definitely. Well, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. That was Emily Stewart, business and politics reporter at Vox. Now coming up, when is it time to cut off a toxic family member? We've got the answers for you next in two minutes. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. As we approach the holiday season, a question on many of our minds is, when is it time to cut off a toxic relationship or family member (laughs) in that case? Because a lot of us are forced to hang around family we don't like. Even on Zoom, it sometimes is very difficult. And joining us right now to help us navigate this is Sarah Stanizai, a licensed marriage and family therapist and founder of Prospect Therapy. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So when do you know if a relationship is toxic? There are a lot of signs that we can look for. People tend to confuse just feeling uncomfortable or getting in conflict as toxicity, which is not the case. Like everybody has conflict. But I think the main hallmark is if you notice there's a pattern, if it happens over and over with the same person or in relation to the same topic, and you can start to predict what's going to happen, that's when you can start to tell if it's toxic. Um, The other thing I look for and tell my clients to look for is lack of accountability so, you know, we bring things up, we might, <laughs> we might avoid the issue for a while, but when we bring it up, if the person is unable to even acknowledge or say, yeah, my bad, that, that is what I was doing. If they can't take any accountability, that's another sign that it might be a toxic relationship. How would you describe a healthy discourse? That's a great question. That's my bread and butter. So yes. um, healthy discourse has room for uncomfortable feelings um, and disagreement. And people sometimes worry that when they acknowledge someone else's side, they're actually condoning it or giving permission and they they don't want to give in. They don't want to accept the behavior. But what you're really doing is when you can acknowledge and admit or um, just hear out the other person and say, yeah, I can see how you saw it that way. Yes, I did do that. I admit it. Um, People's defenses come down immediately. People just really want to be heard. And when the other person feels heard, they're more likely to listen to you. And so that's something I work on with all of my clients about you can bring up things that are uncomfortable. You can end it still not agreeing with each other, but as long as you are genuinely trying to hear each other out, that's really healthy disagreement. Definitely. And I I think we see this with so many different relationships, but it can be harder with family to cut ties because they're family. You're kind of forced in it. So how do you bring that up to a family member? It's true. Sometimes we don't have as much choice with family as with other relationships, but even if they're so important to you and you don't want to just turn your back on a certain family member, 
Um, there are still limits that you can set in the relationship. So you don't have to completely cut out that person and never talk to them again. You can set a clear boundary and say, like clearly explain, this is why I'm doing this and this is what I expect in return and really outline what the exchange is rather than, I don't like when you do that and then <laughs> just be huffy the rest of the day. You can actually <laughs> be specific about it and ask for something in return. Hey, can we just not have that topic come up or... Um, can we not bring it up around certain people? Um, and that's an easier way for people to meet each other's needs. And if that doesn't work, then you have every right to limit contact. And again, that might be by the situation. That might be by the amount of time you spend together. That could be just by setting, like, uh, I don't mind being around that person, but I need backup or I need at least one other person there with me. Or yes, I'll go to this wedding or this event. Remember events pre-COVID? But <laughs> yes, I'll go <laughs> for it. <laughs> Again, now you're hearing from Sarah Stanazai, who's a licensed marriage and family therapist and founder of Prospect Therapy, as we talk about how to cut off a toxic family member. Which I would love to know, as you're taking clients, and one thing for me, especially during this pandemic, I've been doing a lot more therapy than I ever was, right? And I was wondering, do you think you're starting to see more people now put their foot down and kind of create boundaries uh, than before? And how do you think the uh, pandemic has kind of impacted that decision? Absolutely. So our practice has grown a lot this year. We're getting tons of calls, particularly from partners and relationships, and also people who are stuck at home, whether that's parent and child, um, sometimes people who are just living at home where they <laughs> used to have much more outlets, they don't have those outlets anymore. So a lot more people are seeking therapy, and frankly, having the time to do the work. And so Folks are setting more limits, even though we're all living in closer quarters than ever before. People are really, um, there's not much else to do. So we're going to have the conversation about it. And what if uh, one of those individuals you approach doesn't want to hear you out? What are you supposed to do? Yeah, that's fair. You know, we start by setting boundaries and we owe it to ourselves to be really clear. Sometimes people say, well, I've tried everything, but they haven't um, been really, really clear or been really honest. So we have to do that ourselves. But when that doesn't work, then we set an ultimatum and we say, okay, I've given these chances. It's take it or leave it. This is what I'm willing to put up with. And this is what I'm not willing to put up with. Right. And yeah, sometimes people reach their limit, but people sometimes feel that they're setting the ultimatum first. And I always say, give chances by talking about boundaries, having difficult conversations, but it's up to you how many chances you want to give somebody. So that's my final question, right? Because I think the rhetoric or the narrative has been, especially when you're talking about politics, is reach out to those folks who were on the other side and didn't see you clearly and kind of, you know, past the olive branch, right? Do you think that can be harmful at times? Like putting yourself in a situation where you're constantly trying to convince people to see who you are and see like the, the goodness of a situation. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's when other people come into play a lot, like with family members, you know, there's so much pressure by others saying, oh, well, that's your aunt or that's your sister. You need to make up with them. And my advice that I give to people in those cases is if you have given them chances and you've been really clear and they're still not acknowledging it, you don't have to hold their secrets for them. You can say, yeah, I don't talk to that person because of X, Y, and Z. And that usually lets people back off. And then they say, okay, I can respect that. Well, Sarah, thank you again for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, Sarah is a licensed marriage and family therapist and founder of Prospect Therapy. Coming up, a newish sexual orientation, scoliosexual has been pegged as controversial. What's all about next in two minutes? 
Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. What does the term scoliosexual mean and why is it so controversial? Now, this isn't a new term, but it's been making its way around the internet recently. Yes, it has, even though I have not seen it yet, but I did uh, tweet it out and... Yes, some people don't even know what that means, but I, I, yeah, it's a new term that a lot of people are just, I guess, figuring out. There's always something new. There is, and that's why you got to listen to Let's Go There, because we always cover these types of stories. We're always introducing you to the things you need to know, uh, because the term actually popped up around 2010 in an internet forum, and here's the actual definition from dictionary.com. It says, it's the attraction to anyone who identifies as a non-binary gender. Scoliosexuality is the attraction to any gender or non-gender that isn't cisgender, basically. So, which makes a lot of sense. But the question is, why is this problematic? Um, so here's the thing. Uh, I yeah. think the, what the word is rooted for, like, I don't identify with this and I don't know anyone who does, but I know there are people obviously who identify with this term and I think that's good for them. But I think it begins, and this may be a little controversial to say and a little bit much to say, and I would love okay. to know everyone's reactions, but I do think sometimes it's a bit much. Like coming up with all these new terms, it just feels like a lot. It feels like a lot to kind of keep up with. And then it also just feels like, isn't there already a term for this? Like, I I just don't know. And I understand life is always evolving and changing. But like, this sounds like, honestly, and this is me just being Ryan. This is me. Okay. This honestly sounds like the name of a dinosaur. Yeah. And actually the Greek root, for scolio, it means crooked or curved. Which I don't which like. Is, as you mentioned, it's like scoliosis, right? Uh, and that could be stigmatizing to the trans and non-binary communities yes. because the word crooked has a lot of meanings which can mostly be seen as negative. Yeah, and I think a lot of people are obviously, like I said, things are evolving and so people are trying to find things to identify with and things that describe them and where they feel 100% whole and mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm here for that. Um, But this idea of like continuously kind of adding certain things, it's just like, where does that go? Can we just come up with one term where it just kind of recognizes like the fluidity of sexuality and gender and all these things and kind of just let it be? But that's just me. But because I don't and I'm I'm an outside person saying this, I don't identify with this. So, you know, I could be a little bit problematic right now. But I do think a lot of folks think this way in the sense of like, it can be a lot. I mean, I feel the way I feel the same way exactly about BIPOC. Like, I don't mm-hmm. like that term. In all honesty, I think it is uh, just another term for white folks to feel comfortable with talking about people that aren't white instead of just identifying them individually and saying this is who they are: black, indigenous. You don't have to group everyone together, call them out individually, make them seem. Uh, heard instead of like a cattle call where you're just grouping all these people together and oh we covered them that's kind of how an umbrella term yeah Yeah, like like if anything actually this becomes not really an umbrella term because it's that specific right so you could say a lot of people that don't feel like they can identify um as queer or as a sapiosexual or pansexual or whatever other term um, that this becomes very specific to them and it makes them feel like okay this makes people understand what works specifically for them as it relates to partnership or how they want to present themselves to society. Uh, But actually the community is saying that they want these words instead of goliosexual. They would rather terms like a purosexual and heterosexual, which 
uh, with roots meaning boundless and the and the rest. So it is actually See, more, that more that Yeah, it's more of a fluid term that can describe it all together. And I, I mean, like I said, I, I identify as queer. And so for me, I think that term and with the definition of that term is something that I, I closely identify with. But I know that's not the situation for a lot of other people. And I totally respect that. But I do think bigger picture, looking at it from a whole, it can be overwhelming, especially for people in the community and outside of the community trying to figure it out and learning all these things. I get it. Yeah, as long as we have grace and space to mm-hmm. be able to learn together. And yeah, if, if someone makes a mistake or doesn't understand that we can share and learn together, which by the way, that isn't as easy as it seems. As we oh, know, it's easier sure. said than done. For sure. Uh, but let us know what you think of this scoliosexual, uh, and what else should it be called if not that? At LGT shows, where you can find us on social media. Slide into our DMs, hit us up, let us know what you think. Now, coming up on the show, violence has increased in New York. Is it because of the pandemic or defund the police? That's next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. Coming up on the show, how to safely create a pandemic pod with friends. And is it even possible to make it safe? You know, Shira, this was you six months ago, and I still stand by what I was saying. You were trying to convince me that these pandemic pods were the new trend, and I just don't believe it. I think it's irresponsible. I think it's possible as long as you do trust the people in your pod because you can't just have a pod and then they have pods. That doesn't really make sense. But we've got Dr. James Simmons to help us navigate this conversation joining us in just a bit. But let's get into some what's trending this hour. NYPD union head Pat Lynch used a press conference about a domestic abuse case where officers were shot at as an example of why the police should not be defunded. And those that disrespect police officers, those that want to say, well, let's defund them. Let's take them out of every different type of job. Here's an example. It's an example of a domestic dispute. It's an example when the police officers walk in, they get shot at. What would happen if the police officers weren't there? What would happen if we didn't have enough of them to cover all the radio runs? What would happen if a social worker was there and the police officer was? Meanwhile, New York City murders are up by 33% and the number of victims shot has doubled. A former NYPD analyst says COVID-19, political unrest and economic depression might play a role in the data. Now, in a historic first, San Francisco District Attorney Chesa Budin charged former police officer Chris Samayoa with homicide over the 2017 fatal shooting of Keita O'Neill, who was black. It was the first time the city had ever prosecuted a law enforcement officer for killing while on duty. Now, the progressive DA who was elected last year said he hopes to send a message loud and clear to the city's black community, as well as its police department, that, quote, no one is above the law. We are here to enforce laws equally, no matter what the color of your skin, no matter how much money you have in your bank, and no matter your job title or whether you wear a uniform to work. Now, the Scottish Parliament, I think this is so amazing what I'm about to talk about, voted unanimously to pass a measure that requires local authorities to ensure free period products are available to anyone who needs them. Because, you know, we spend a lot on period products as ladies, but then also for those who don't have the money, like that, that's a huge issue. When you started saying we, you love kind of including me and stuff. And this is just yeah, something why not? that I can't be included in. You know, that's just not how it works. Well, hey, now you won't have to, uh, or no, if you were living in Scotland, maybe you would ha- be able to get free period products for the I would get it for you. I would most definitely exactly. get it for you. I, I would stock up. I would just go like, I mean, seek the super shopper show, just like getting nothing but tampons. 
Okay. Scottish Labour MSP Monica Lennon, who spearheaded the campaign, says the vote marks a proud day for Scotland and a signal to the world that free universal access to period products can be achieved. There you go. Okay, that was what's trending this hour. What's happening in entertainment news, Ryan? All right, so let's dive into the T-Report, those pop culture stories that are trending right now. Now, I don't know if you knew this, but I sure didn't. Dave Chappelle, he basically is shedding a light on a big issue with his recent stand-up set, Unforgiven, that he shared on Instagram, of course, because that seems like his new way of communicating, uh, communicating what he needs. But basically, he's going back and forth with Viacom CBS. He says that he reached out to um, Netflix because his show, the Dave Chappelle show, started streaming on there. Um, but he reached out to uh, basically Netflix about a takedown after Viacom CBS, who owns the rights of the hit show, licensed it for streaming without his permission. Here is what he had to say. They're going to pay me for this show. I called my agent. I said, is there anything I can do about this show? And he said, no. If you want something done right, I guess you got to do it yourself. So I'm not going to the agents. I'm coming to my real boss. I'm coming to you. I'm begging you. If you ever liked me, if you ever think there was anything worthwhile about me, I'm begging you, please don't watch that show. I'm not asking to boycott any network. Boycott me. Boycott Chappelle's show. Do not watch it unless they pay me. So luckily, Netflix was on the same page as him. And after just three weeks, Netflix has pulled the Chappelle show from its service at the request of Dave Chappelle. Um, however, he still is un- upset with HBO and Viacom CBS because HBO Max, however, is still streaming the Comedy Central production, leading Chappelle to ask his lawyer following to boycott the series. Um, he claims that at one point he was talk- he had a, basically a meeting with an exec over at HBO, and one of the execs basically said, said, what do we need you for doing a pitch meeting? And he's just never been okay with them ever since. And now that he's like, oh, please don't watch the Dave Chappelle show until they pay me because they're messing with my money. And it's, yeah, you don't want to get on uh, Chappelle's bad side. Oh, not at all. Because, you know, he uses his platforms for storytelling and he will. I mean, and I still have yet to watch the full thing. But, yeah, it's getting a lot of attention. And Netflix did not want to go get it and get on the bad side of Dave Chappelle for sure. And that is your team report. He also did an amazing stand up special on his YouTube channel in reference to everything happening. Yeah, it's, uh, it's literally I think it's literally titled eight minutes and 46 seconds or something like yes. that. It's about George Floyd. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely recommend watching it. It's very powerful. Now, let's move into the pandemic pod discussion. We're going to be navigating how that works. And can you actually do that safely next in two minutes? Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. Pandemic pods are all the rage, but how can you safely create a pandemic pod with your friends? Back with us is our favorite Dr. James Simmons. Happy holidays, Dr. James. Well, thank you very much. Happy holidays to you, too. Although it feels really wild and crazy, right? Uh, Yeah, to say the least. I almost asked y'all what holiday was coming up. I was like, what? (laughs) You're like, I think it's Thanksgiving. I don't even know, to be honest. So let's talk about this trend. What is a quarren commune? Ooh, right. And then, and then how does it differ from a pandemic pod or is it the same? I think it's basically the same thing. You know, we have to, we be given stuff some names, right? We just have to give things names so that we feel good about it and can talk about it. So 
this pod idea is kind of what everyone was talking about early on in the pandemic when they were saying, listen, find the same people that you're going to hang out with and just hang out with those people. Except I have to say, part of the reason that we are in the situation that we are in now with cases going up in 47 of 50 states right now, and we're seeing some of the worst numbers that we've seen in this entire pandemic is because this is what everyone did. They took their three or four friends that they were hanging out with and they started hanging out with just those three or four friends. And then everyone in that group started hanging out with a different group of three or four friends. Yep. And so what ended up happening is that there were now three or four different pods hanging out with three or four different pods. And even though everyone was like, well, it's, but it's a small group, as the weather started to change, they went inside, they stopped wearing their masks and they acted like it was normal because, well, but this is my pod. That's not the way to do a pod, I promise you. I mean, that was Shira six months ago talking about hey, a pod. Hey, hey, it was no. exactly the same language. And now she over here doing hand signals like, oh, my goodness. Girl, that was you. But I do want to talk about, because we know the, uh, the vaccines are on the horizon, could we start actually thinking about this positively and thinking about that idea of herd immunity? Well, so that herd immunity has become kind of a problematic word, right? There's there's all these words that have happened in 2020, like furlough and all of these different things where we're like, I never want to hear that word again. So as a medical professional, as a scientist, I'm, I'm a little leery of the word herd immunity, but vaccines are very, very exciting. And I think we have a lot to look forward to. I actually am more excited about the AstraZeneca vaccine even though the efficacy numbers are a little bit lower than the other vaccines, I think it's gonna work as well, if not better. I think we're gonna get it out faster. I also think it's so much more cost-effective. We can get it into different countries. I think we have a lot to look forward to with, with vaccines, but we're not there yet. We are still months away from everyone being vaccinated and we need everyone to still buckle down and double down like it sounds like Shira has done. I appreciate that. I needed that validation. Dr. James Simmons is oh. with us as usual. What are some tips to building a pandemic pod? Trust is really the biggest key. If, if you're gonna do this, you have to pick who you think you can trust the most. I think it starts there. You know, there's an old adage when I was in corporate America, there's this old adage that if you hire right, you don't have to fire wrong, right? Like if you hire the right person, you're never in the situation where you're firing people and you're in a complicated situation. Same thing goes with your pod. Don't pick your four friends to be in a pod and the one because you think the one is so much fun and she's the best, you know, girl to be out with and partying and kicking until 4 a.m. because that's probably not the person who's going to be the most responsible with your pod. So pick very well. Everyone has to agree to the rules. This is like item number two. Set the rules early, agree to them. Everyone has to stick to the rules. I know some pods that have even signed contracts with each other that say that they're going to stick to the rules. Yeah, it's kind of wild. The third thing is you got to start this whole situation in the way that we recommend. You got to quarantine for 14 days. You should get tested at the beginning and at the end of that. Everyone should be forthright with their test. Show it to you. you usually get it on your phone, right? You usually get it electronically. Show everybody that test, text it to everyone, put it as a part of your contract, do that 14 day quarantine. Um, and then finally, I think you have to stick to it. You can't have people who are like, oh, I'm gonna be in the pod this month, but then you know, I have to go see my family for Thanksgiving or whatever, so I'm gonna fly to Texas and be back and then I wanna rejoin the pod. You wanna rejoin the pod, you gotta quarantine for 14 days, you got to get tested at the beginning of that and at the end of that, and you got to agree to the rules again. And that's just, that's a, asking a lot of people. I, I think it's really tough. 
Are we not like past that though? Like as numbers are rising, like should we even be thinking about, you know, these pods? Like, is it irresponsible in a way? Very good question. You know, I think that what we have to find a balance here and I keep using this word and and maybe it's beginning to get overused, but these are very nuanced conversations. I think we are past because we did not have a federally coordinated response that was worth a damn. Um, because we are where we are right now, we have to be comfortable having really difficult, really nuanced conversations, sometimes with people that we love a lot who disagree with us. And so to your point, Ryan, no, I am not a big fan of pods. I don't think they work. I think it's asking too much of people that people can't stick to. I also think there's a lot of privilege around pods too, right? Like you don't see black and brown folks in the hood who have to work at the front lines of Target being able to be in pods, right? So that there's a whole other conversation. But what, you know, what I will say is that people's mental health is at its breaking point. We are on the knife's edge right now as a country. And I'm, I'm surprised we got through the election as well as we did without, you know, we were all were expecting civil unrest. And there was a little bit, but not as much as we all thought. But we are still on that knife's edge. It's only going to get worse with the holidays. And so I feel like we have to have a conversation about whether or not you can be around people for your own mental sanity while still being COVID safe. Definitely. Well, Dr. James Simmons, always a pleasure having you here. Thank you very much. Y'all have a great Thanksgiving. You too. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. We're wrapping up the show as we always do with some inspiration with our Yaz Queen of the day. Yes, Queen. Sprinkled in, of course, with some positivity. Uh, Now, last week, Dr. Elizabeth Pierce, a communications professor at the University of Iowa, told her students in an email that has since gone viral that she will make extra portions of her Thanksgiving dinner and drop it off for them if they need a home-cooked Thanksgiving meal this year. Now, that got shared online and everyone is just loving it. So it's just what an amazing thing to do for your students, including during this time. Uh, Do you think she'll ship it to me? Like if I like reach out and be like, hey, Dr. Elizabeth, we would love to have you on. And I heard you're cooking a great meal. Can you send it over to me? Right. We're not your students, but we can use some food uh, and a family this Thanksgiving. Uh, She responded uh, telling this to Good Morning America about her new viral fame, saying, I think this just touched people, not because it's a big gesture or anything great, but just because it was just a little of sunshine in kind of a dark time by the way for a whole class that is a pretty big gesture i mean yeah that's huge and i hope the food was delicious if she's cooking it for a whole bunch of college students to be honest they'll probably eat anything right exactly now this story just blows me away and is just incredible a california family was down to their last 12 dollars at the beginning of the pandemic and now they have a new car and a new home why you might what It's not because of Oprah. It's not because of like any talk show host rewarding them with something or I don't know, some brand. It's because of the hard work of their eight-year-old son. Wow. This is wild. Yeah. Aaron Moreno, uh, his mom and two other family members were living in a shed in East LA, struggling with their finances. He decided to start Aaron's Garden, his own business. Right? Oh, Oh my goodness. He began with just eight plants. And business boomed. And now the money he's earned combined with 31000 raised from the GoFundMe and his mom's new part-time job, it's given his family literally an entire new life. In October, he was able to buy his mom a, a car. He's eight years old. Her first in four years with the money he'd earned from Aaron's garden. And then he helped upgrade their uh, home. They were living in a shed to an actual apartment. So this is beautiful, and I am so proud of Aaron for doing this. But I also hope, Aaron, now that the, he's kind of helping his family get to afloat, I'm hoping that he can be a child and kind yes. of enjoy because 
the stress of having to step up, and I know he probably did it in the best way that he knew how, it can be a, it can be a lot for him. And I love the idea of Aaron's garden. It sounds so beautiful. And what he's been able to do is just amazing. And what a hero to his family, for sure. Definitely. So that is our Yaz Queen of the day. Yes, Queen. Now we are back tomorrow, same time right here weekdays on Channel Q Live, 4 to 7 p.m. Pacific, 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern. We're going to be talking about the trauma of Thanksgiving for Native communities during this pandemic, plus how gig workers are being hired to wait in line for people's COVID-19 tests. Wow. This is actually (laughs) happening, okay? (laughs) That is so crazy. Yeah, that and more tomorrow. And remember, if you miss any of our shows or interviews, we post everything as a podcast. Just go to the radio.com app, search Let's Go There and subscribe so you're notified when we post new episodes. Before we say goodbye, a reminder, stick around for Loveline, where Dr. Chris will be covering how to end unhealthy relationships and how to take a schoolcation. Don't we all need that? Mm. Uh, But right now we're saying, uh, I'm sending you love and light. And honey, remember to slay. See you tomorrow. Have a great night. Bye, y'all. Let's go there with Shira Lazar and Ryan Mitchell on Channel Q. On the next show, the trauma of Thanksgiving for Native communities during the pandemic. Plus, activist and social media star historian Blair Imani joins us to help us get smarter in seconds. Listen live weekdays 4 to 7 p.m. Pacific, 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Channel Q or on your own time with the Let's Go There podcast on the Radio.com app.